Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. About these Judaizers, these people that were trying to add something to salvation. It was Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. And Paul is writing a very stern letter. This is a, the way he addressed the Galatian church is very different than he addressed some of the other churches uh, that he wrote to. Being the history guy that I am, being a history teacher and somebody that always had an affinity in, in studying theology in classes that I took, I always loved the Christian history courses. And I would love to at some point, not now, but at some point in my time here, I'd love to do like a, a survey course on, on church history, not you at church history. I think that would be a lot of fun, and nobody said amen to that. Nobody said they were excited about that, which really hurts my feelings. But I'll get over it. Uh, many of you know the name Martin Luther, father there, picture up there. You can see him on the screens. Father of the Protestant Reformation. How many of you knew that? All right, you remember that? Maybe your, your uh, history is a little hazy. Your memory is a little hazy. It's ah, somewhere along the lines, and... Uh, high school, I, you learned that name. Well, Martin Luther lived during the 16th century, born in the late, you know, 15, in the 16th century. And in that time, in the Middle Ages, he, along with other scholars and theologians, had a lot of questions about the Catholic Church. Now, I know, can I eradicate a, a misnomer, a, uh, a fallacy about him? He was not a rebel. And you know the story, his 95 theses, when he posted at Wittenberg, the castle there, he is not looking to, he is looking to get in a dialogue. He is looking to discuss certain tenets of the, of the faith with the Catholic Church. You probably were taught that he was a rebel and he goes there and he's stern, he's mad and he's angry. It's not really true. He was looking to open up the channels of dialogue and talk. Now, I bring him up today because I would be remiss if I didn't give you some history relating, tethered to this book of Galatians. Now, in the 16th century, what were some of the questions? Well, the Catholic Church was espousing, propagating this idea of works righteousness, that you could be, you could be pleasing in the eyes of God by doing certain things. And what was the main thing? Let's see, does anybody know what was the main thing the church was selling back then in the Middle Ages? indulgences, all right? And that was causing much consternation for Luther and others. Well, the year is 1517. And you know that later on in this year, that's when he'll actually post his 95 theses. But understand, Luther was somebody in the beginning, before 1517, he was somebody steeped in the faith. He was somebody that went along with everything that the church was, was talking about. So he was in the middle of this, and there was a crazy event that happened. How many of you have been to Rome? I've never been to Rome. All right, some of you have been to Rome. All right, if you go to Rome today, you know some of you are nodding your heads, I see you. This is the Scala Santa. This is outside of uh, St. John's Basilica, right, in Rome. These are what you're looking at. You see some people there. These are the 28 marble steps that were taken. Christian lore says that in the 4th century, how many of you know the name Constantine? Really the one that made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. Stay with me, all right? I'm going somewhere. Made Christianity the state religion. Well, his mom, Helena... 
moved the steps from Jerusalem to Rome in the 4th century. These are believed to be the steps that Jesus himself walked up as he was going before Pilate on Good Friday. What? Yeah, yeah. So when people go, you see the people that are there on the steps, I have to do and show it to you. You would get on your knees and you would kiss every single step on your way up to the top. And it was you reflecting on the sacrifice that Christ had made 2,000 years ago on your behalf. Well, here is Martin Luther. The year is 1517. He is on these steps. And in the middle of these steps, he has an epiphany. An aha moment where he realizes what is going on in the Catholic Church. What are we doing? And these are the words that were stuck in his mind. These are the words the Spirit of God gave to that man centuries ago. They are none other than the words that you see in Galatians. We're in the third chapter. Galatians 3.11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. But here it is. This is what Luther heard in his spirit. For the just shall live by faith. He is quoting here, Paul was quoting from the Old Testament book, Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2. And he's quoting there, and Martin Luther saw this and was moved by this. This is the start, this is the epicenter, this is the origins of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. It turned this man's world upside down. And he knew something was wrong. And the church even, he's the one that took the Bible and put it in the language of the people. The people didn't know. They were getting get out of hell cards. These indulgences. That's how I classify them. And people, peasants, were buying them. They were taking their life savings. Believing this is what was right. Pope Leo selling these indulgences. Really, well, I'm giving you a little more history than I probably should. But the Pope at the time was really more of a banker than even a Pope. And he's selling these indulgences because he wanted to renovate the church that was there in Rome. And he said, I'm not using my estate. I'm not using my fortune that I've amassed. I'm going to put it on the burden of the burden on the people. Amazing story. So I start there. I'm not done yet. All right. Now. Martin Luther said, well, wrote a commentary on the book of Galatians. He wrote a commentary on this book and he called it his Catherine von Bora, which that was his wife's name, which means the pinnacle. This was the greatest thing that he could have written. Galatians was basically his favorite book in the Bible. So moved by what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He said, this is it. This is the pinnacle. This is incredible. This is amazing. So he writes this commentary. Now, fast forward to the first great awakening, the 1700s. Two more names. Ready? How many of you know these names? John and Charles Wesley. John Wesley, the father of the Methodist movement. Did you know? Think about this. All week I'm thinking about this. 1735. You have John Wesley, you have Charles Wesley, and you have a guy named George Whitfield who used to ride around on horseback and he delivered thousands of sermons during the First Great Awakening. A fiery orator, a fiery preacher that even Benjamin Franklin, a deist, was moved by when he heard him speak. God was moving on hearts. Those three guys started this group in 1735. Out of that, this movement that John Wesley said, I want to... Talk about the method by which one becomes holy. We get the Methodist church. And here are these two guys. You want it? This is wild. This blows my mind. There's a man by the name of William Holland. William Holland is with these two guys in the 1700s. Again, 
first great awakening. If you don't know what that is, that is thousands of people, both sides of the Atlantic. You look at the United States, you look at Europe, British Isles, everywhere. You have people that are converting to Christianity. People are moved. This is a revolution that has started. These guys are part of it. And this guy, William Holland, you know what he did? He's sitting with these two men. And these two men, even though they're Christians, they said something was missing. Something was absent in their hearts. They couldn't find true peace. They couldn't find true rest. You know what Holland did? He pulled out Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians and he read the preface. And let me give you his words. These are his words, not my words, his words. Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface a lot. I'm sorry, I said, I said Holland. This is Wesley reading, and I'm, I apologize. There came such a power over... Can you tell I get excited? There came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. That's right, that's right, baby Nolan. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. These are proper people. 1700s. Most people, they didn't talk like this. Yeah. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. When I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. Just from someone reading the preface to the commentary, Luther's preface to the commentary on Galatians. Guess what they did after that? They went around everywhere to other people and they said, hey, hey, you have to hear this. And they sat people down and people were moved. Tons of people just by reading the preface. You should try it. I read, I was reading Luther's commentary this week, crying as I was, shocker, crying as I read it because I was so moved by the history. There is real history in this movement. This is not fables. This is not fairy tales. I'm not going to stand up here and lay my life down for something that is a lie. It passes the historicity test. You young people, I would love to talk to you. If you have questions about the history of this book, archaeological digs, you name it, bring it. I'd love to. I'd love to talk about that. William Holland said that. And then listen to this. This is wild. So this is the turning point of his life. And then he says, this is John Wesley talking about when he heard it. I didn't put it up on the screens, but he said, my heart was strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ. After this, after reading the pre- hearing the preface to this book, John Bunyan, how many of you know his name? wasn't going to give you this, but I'll give it to you. John Bunyan, you know the name, Pilgrim's Progress. The second most published book in the history of the world. Guess what? You know what his favorite book was outside of this book, the Bible? Luther's commentary to the Galatians. It changed his life and turned his life upside down. All of that to say, Galatians is a bomb. Nuclear bombs are detonated. When you read it, it changes lives. Just because somebody wrote it 2,000 years ago doesn't mean that your life can't be changed today. It can be changed just like Luther's life was changed, just by John Bunyan's life was changed, and Wesley, both Wesley brothers, and myriads of other people that saw their lives turned upside down. Do you believe that? Because you don't look like you believe it this morning. Oh, I didn't know I was coming to church. Yeah, yeah, I'm on fire today. You give me a couple of weeks off. This is what happens. So without any further ado, I'm not going to give you normal expository teaching. I'm not going to exegete the text like, like we're taught to. I'm going to move around a little bit. And I'm going to start in a place where I felt the Spirit took me yesterday. So if you have your Bibles, though, we're going to be in chapter 3. You with me? Everyone with me? 
Did you understand the history? Did you get it? All right, all right. All right. Galatians chapter 3, starting at the top. Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Moving to five. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. All right, now. The thing that hits me the most when I read this, yeah, I'm going to get into justification in a little bit. How many of you talked about justification at your Hill Houses that you saw the John Piper five-minute clip and you talked about that? It was excellent. Not many of you. Okay. Just, well, I, didn't, I need a little feedback. Stay with me, all right? Okay. Now, in that, we're going to get to that in a little bit. This, and, and Tom had said this yesterday. To echo his sentiments, this is not the easiest book in the world to preach, even though there is so much rich material in it. But if you stay with this, you'll be blessed. And I think you'll walk out understanding something, really understanding something about the gospel and Christianity that maybe you didn't know before. All right? And it's helped me immensely in studying it. And the first part here that I want to talk about, do you notice in here, let's back up. Do you notice in here numerous times where it says, like uh, in verse 2, it says, you receive the Spirit. Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Now, commentators, scholars note, this is capitalized, right? This is capitalized because I, I think sometimes, you know what happens to us? We can look at the Holy Spirit as this impersonal, ethereal force that is kind of, it just like kind of exists out there, right? You know what I'm talking about? And I think sometimes we can think that it's kind of like a ray that comes off the fingertip of God, that it's something that emanates from God. And I would say to you this morning, the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal object. The Holy Spirit is a he. It is a he. That is why it is capitalized. It is a he. It is God transferable. Did you hear what I just said? God transferable. It is God. And I know my, my five-year-old son sitting in the car with me the other day, he started. It's a little bit earlier than I, I wasn't ready for this, but I got the whole trainer. I got the question already, right? Dad, Jesus, God, what's the difference? What's, he's in heaven. He's at, where's he? I thought he was here. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So you're going to, I said, you know what? That's a great question. You're going to have to talk to Grammy about that. (laughs) Did I, what about last night? Did I, what did he say? He said, he he was mad. He was mad at mommy and dad. And he said something about Jesus. Jesus isn't real or something. So I'm ready. Megan and I are looking at each other and she's looking at me like, what are you going to say? Come on, come on, preacher man. Come on, daddy. What are you going to say? And then I'm like, uh, Grammy, Grammy, help. (laughs) Because I knew her answer would be much better. What was your answer, Randy? It was good. It was really good. I don't remember what it was, but it was darn good. All right. Now, on that topic, the Holy Spirit, 
we sometimes forget what we have residing inside of us, the power of the Holy Spirit. And you hear that all the time. And to make this come alive, where would James Lecce go for an illustration? Where would I go? Come on. C.S. Lewis, great guess. A lot of times I'll go there, but I have enough heady stuff today. What? Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. Lord of the Rings. Well, in Lord of the Rings, if you haven't read the books, Jameson, will be, it will be required reading this summer. He'll start early, right? Well, it, it, one of the great secrets, I think, is found there in terms of talking about the power of the Holy Spirit that resides inside of every one of us. And early on, Frodo, right? We all know the main character, Frodo, right? He has to go to Mordor, and he has to take the ring and throw it into Mount Doom, right? And by the way, I still need my ring. My ring is lost. My ring is lost. I know, I know. I think somebody took it and tried to throw it in Mount Doom, Pastor Linda. Anyway, um, so there's Frodo. And he's going on this journey, and he has some companions, and his cousin, now, if you watch the movies, you think it's like his grandfather. Bilbo is not his grandfather. Got to, like, you know, make sure we're all on the same page here. They're like cousins, like very, you know, large gap there between their ages. But they're cousins. And Bilbo, before Frodo goes on a journey, gives him a coat of mail. Not mail like post office. A coat of mail would be pieces of metal that would be, like, sewn together. It would be, like put together, it would make like a, like a vest, like a, like almost like a bulletproof vest and almost like impenetrable. So he gives him this vest and here's a picture from the movies. So you get an idea. All right. This is like this picture of this vest and he takes this vest, Frodo, he takes it from Bilbo and he puts it on underneath all of his clothes. Right. So he takes it and puts it on. Now he's traveling. He's not that far away from the Shire. He's with some companions. And they're talking, and one of the guys says, and, and Frodo's in earshot of this, he says, man, they start talking about Bilbo, and he says, did you know that Bilbo had a coat of mithril? Now you're like, what? Never heard of mithril. Yeah, all right. In Tolkien world, mithril is like a hundred times more powerful, lighter, more valuable than gold and silver. All right? So it's really good stuff, strong stuff. Don't go look it up online. It's not real. This is fake, okay? This is fiction. So he has this, and he's like, I heard that he has a coat of mithril that is worth more than all of his other possessions put together. And the other guy's like, huh, if he has a coat of mithril, it's worth more than the whole country that he's from. And here is this little Frodo, this little character that is on this journey, and you love him because he's so ordinary, just like we are. And he's on this journey, and he's, he thinks to himself, oh my gosh, Underneath the clothes that I have on, I have this, this coat of mithril that is worth a staggering amount of money. And people would probably try to kill me if they knew I had it so they could take it. Oh my gosh. And I would say to you as an illustration, do you realize what is underneath your flesh? Do you realize what resides inside of you? Do you realize the power that you have, that you wield? The power of life and death is in the tongue. Do you realize when there is a, when there is sickness? Do you realize when there is disease? Do you realize when you're up against divorce, when you're up against bankruptcy, there is a God who knows, there is a God who hears, and there is a spirit that is alive today. The Holy Spirit is real. I've used this quote before, but I, Pastor Lynn, I said, I said, I gotta, I have to use this again. Ready? Right? You gotta look at this. 
Annie Dill. We should look at this every other week, this quote. Every other week. She won the Pulitzer Prize in the 1970s. If you haven't read anything from her, look her up. Great stuff. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children are playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Come on. We, we come in and we sing our songs. You hear a message and you're just kind of like, yeah, that was a good message. Maybe it's a good message. And you hear it, but we, we walk out and then we're like, all right, that was cool. I did my thing. I did my church thing this week. Maybe I go to my hill house. Do we really believe the Holy Spirit has enough power to change our lives? And I'm not saying just chaos. I'm saying whatever situations we're up against. That there is real power from up, up on high. I don't just want head knowledge. I want knowledge that is going to invade my heart, invade my being, and change my life, rearrange my life, rearrange my schedule, which I'm very regimented. I'm very fastidious. But to change my schedule, to change our schedule, to have his way in this place, isn't that what you want? Right? I don't know. If, that's not, if you don't want that, I don't get it. I'm confused. I'm perplexed. Because it can get old doing the same thing, coming in week after week doing the same old thing. But Annie Dillard has it right. This is how we really should come into church every single Sunday. This is how we should believe. This is what we should look to, that there is a God who is alive. God is not dead. I'm sorry, Nietzsche. God is alive, and he wants to do amazing things in our midst. I'm glad you're with me a little more now. Now... Can we get into, that's like a side note, but I had to start with that. Is that normal exegetical teaching? No, it's not. But that's how I felt led to start out this chapter. Now, let's get to the actual beginning of the chapter. If you want that, like what's going on here? Don't you love how, he, look what he says. Foolish Galatians. Foolish. He's calling them out. Who has bewitched you? Whoa. You find that strong language? Anybody find that strong language? Well, I love what one commentator said. One commentator said the best way to translate this is, oh, you dear idiots. <laughs> I love that. And it makes a lot of sense, but it's said really kind of in an, an affectionate way that he loves them so much. What are you doing? It's Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. You have everything that you need in Christ. It's not what needs to be done. It's what, in John, the words of John Stott, it's what's already been done. That's what he's saying. Don't add anything else. Why are you making it complicated? Why are you telling people to follow the law? No, no, no. This movement that was started by Christ not too long ago, Galatians, is a movement that doesn't need anything else. All it needs is the salvific work of one Jesus Christ on the cross. And when he says there that he was clearly portrayed, this means to be put up like... A, now, did Paul have PowerPoint like I have today? If Paul was preaching to the Galatians, did he have PowerPoint? No, he didn't have that. He didn't have any technology. 
But the imagery that is here, what, what in Greek, what this really means is that it was portrayed. It was so vivid and it was so alive. He told a story. Did you get that? He didn't give them principles. They were so used to the law. He told them a story about Christ and Christ crucified and resurrected three days later. Oh, I would love to one day in the heavens to see, to go back. God, play that one. I want to see the video footage of Paul preaching to the Galatian church when you were portrayed, vividly portrayed, and everybody saw it, everybody understood, and hearts were moved, lives were changed. He's saying, go back to that moment. Don't you remember what happened there? The spirit so moved on you. How can you be so foolish? Who has bewitched you? These Judaizers. They're filling your heads that you have to follow the law, the law, the law. Couldn't be any further from the truth. Remember what he has done. So he told a story. And then you get to, when you go to verse 2 and moving down, I'm not going to read that whole part again. What is he doing? He is giving the Galatians rhetorical questions. He knows the answers to these questions, right? So he's hitting them, boom, boom. It's like right hand, right jab, left jab, right jab, left jab, to tell them he knows the answers, and he knows they know the answers. He's reminding them of their salvation. Again, nothing needs to be added. And then he gets to this great part where he talks about Abraham. Now look what it says in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, some translations use the word credited. You may, anybody have the old King James? You know what that, you have the old King James. What does it say? It says reckoned, right? But that would make Paul look like he was a southerner. I reckon that y'all need to stop adding things to the gospel. So he ch- it's changed here. It's accounted or it would be credited. That credited is probably... You know, I don't know. It's, it's, either one works. All right, so he's saying that here, but let's stop for a second. And there is a picture that is all throughout the New Testament that everybody, the people of God are all in the line of, of Abraham, right? Everybody, everybody's in the line of Abraham. And he's going back to the story in Genesis. I'm going to get there in a second. But how many of you, I had a picture this week and I said, I have to mention it. How many of you were in, you, you were in Sunday school? You grew up in the church. Really? All right, all right, all right. Decent amount. So you grew up in the church. Do you remember a song about Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Hold on, hold on one second. This is at the point right now. If you didn't grow up in the church, you're like, I'm pretty darn glad I didn't grow up in the church. Father Abraham had many sons. Sing it again, come on. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Uh Uh-huh, 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 right? And then it's like right hand, left hand. It's like, what's going on, right? Well, here's why I'm thinking of this. I'm thinking of the song. I remembered back. Tom said last week he gave you a story about his childhood, like like it's Sunday school minivan story, right? So I'm thinking back. I drove, as I'm going to the gym this morning, I drove past our old church building. No, no, no. No, that's that's not the response I wanted. I love the old church building. Gosh, I miss it so much. Not across the street from the old church building. If you don't know and you're new to this place, we've been here, what, like seven years? You go down the road here and you'll see an old church building. There's a lot of history there. But across the street is this thing right here. 
Where is it? Oops. Go back. Okay. Come on. Come on. Work. There we go. This was called, you know what I'm talking about? Right, right. This used to be part of the church, right? Now, they called this the restoration house when I was a kid. The restoration house. The problem was it was never really restored. Or at least the basement was never restored. So I remember singing, Father Abraham had many sons in the basement. Right? And we were chilling out in the basement in a moldy, grimy, dirty basement singing, Father. And I remember going, really? Like, I know I'm like the pastor's kid. I'm like, listen, all right. I'll eat your gluten. I'll drink your sugar. I'll sing your songs. But just get me out of this place. I remember the lady that was doing I'm like, lady, really? Really? You want me to wonder why I was getting in trouble all the time? They made me sing those songs. So I go by there. I think of life, right? Those, those kinds of experiences singing Father Abraham. It's stuck in my head. Never forgot the song, right? But you think about it. We said it before on a serious note. Think about what those kids are getting. Come on. Think about what those kids really are getting. We put so much energy into this and the music. We say it a lot, but that's, that's, where, that's what's really important. Over there. Over there. That's what's important. This is not a ploy. This is not James like trying to manipulate and say, hey, look, if you have some free time on your hands, maybe you would like to help out with the kids. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying the kids are the most important thing we have. And if we're not investing in them, what are we doing? You know how many churches, listen to me, pastors, kid, again, I've been around the block, all right? I've seen a lot of different churches, a lot of different things. I see churches that the, the population is getting older and you don't see as many young kids. People come to City on a Hill Community Church and they go, wow, there's old, it's intergenerational. That's the way the church is supposed to be. Intergenerational. It's supposed to be people of all different races. This is the church. Rich, poor, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. That's what the church really is. Right? It's true. Another tangential point. Um, so let's get to what is actually going by Restoration House. If we get to, if we get to what is actually being said here, when uh, in your Bibles, again, if I could, it's me. It's not the machine now at this point. But the the phrase or the, the sentence there that I underlined, just as Abraham believed God. Now I want you to notice something. It doesn't say he believed in God. Ooh, it, it, that's really, that's a big deal. It's a huge deal. It doesn't say he believed in God. He believed God and it was credited. I'm using the word credited or accounted to him as righteousness, for righteousness. Does this mean that at that moment in the story, let's go about, give you a little bit. I don't have a lot of time. I'd love to go into great detail on the story itself, but this is where it's, this is what Paul is referring to. The story in Genesis 15, I only gave you a couple of verses, but Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is what Paul is referring to. He's going back to that story. Abraham, yes, you may be an old man. You may be taking Geritol, right? You may be going to a convalescent home at some point soon. But understand something. I am God and I'm going to have my way. And you're going to have, look, look at the stars. Those are your ancestors, your heirs. Look, all up there. Look, you need to understand. I am going to do something in your line. It's going to start with you. And it move, and move all the way through history. Now, when it says here... When it says, credited him 
um, for righteousness as righteousness, does that mean at that moment that Abraham was actually righteous in the eyes of God? Did he just automatically become righteous? No, it was counted as if he was righteous in the eyes. Of, now, Abraham, he's giving the gospel. Understand this. When Abraham heard that, he had this theophany and God is, is communicating with him. He is getting the gospel message. He doesn't understand. He doesn't know what the gospel is. He doesn't know who Jesus is. But make no mistake about it. He is getting the gospel. He's giving it to him. Now, the word accounted or credited, it's obviously, it's, it's obviously a financial word. What this word connotes is, picture somebody, you go tomorrow, you wake up, and you check your bank account, right? You check your bank account, and there is a million dollars that has been deposited in your bank account. You didn't earn that money. You didn't, unless it was a mistake by the bankers. I, you, you have that money in your bank. Can't even say won the lottery because you would have went to the store and bought a ticket. You did absolutely nothing. And that money is deposited in your account. That is in essence what this means. This is what Paul is saying. You didn't earn the money. You didn't do anything. But it's been deposited in your account. You have the value of it. It is yours. You didn't work for it. But now it's yours. So... He doesn't become righteous. His account, he's counted as righteous. He doesn't work for it, but the money is transferred into his account. Everybody get that? Now, Tim Keller is absolutely money when it comes to preaching on justification. I I mean, John Piper's great. Tim Keller is where, I I mean, there's a great book. If you want to read Galatians for me, Tim Keller, uh, just a wonderful job breaking down this book. I mean, there are so many others, but I'd be up here for five minutes if I listed this commentary, that commentary. A lot of great stuff, but I'd lead you to Tim Keller. Now, he's very heady. He's intellectual. It's like listening to a college professor talk in a church. He's brilliant, if you are into that. Okay, so... He said, righteousness is a validating performance record which opens doors. All right, I'll say it again to you. I didn't put it up there. A couple of things I'll mention, I'll say, look, this is from Keller. I make no bones about it. From here moving forward, much of it is Tim Keller. I paraphrase some things, certain things. I tried to make it more digestible. You know what I'm talking about? You're a preacher. You get it. A validating performance record which opens doors. What does that mean? All right, that means... I'm trying to think of an example. I'm a teacher. When I go to school, I write tons of letters of recommendation. I have all these kids. Like last night, our valedictorian is emailing me. Mr. Lerchie, can you do another scholarship for me? Really? I've only done 15. All right, so let's make it number 16, right? Doing all these things for kids, but they're trans... Because it's so important to them what's on their transcript and their letters of recommendation. This is my, this is my record. This is my validating performance record. That I'm talking for college. They take this record and they show colleges and say, you must accept me based on the merits of my grades, what my performance, what I've done. Think about it a different way. Think about if you go, you're going for a job interview, right? And you have a resume. That resume is your performance record. And you give it to that person and say, this is my resume. These are all the things I've done. This is where I was. You should hire me based on what that resume says. Does that make sense to you? All right. That's in essence, and again, he did a great job. That's in essence what this really means. So you look at that and say, okay, so my vocational record, my school record, what do we do as people everywhere in the world? That's, it's, everything's kind of meritorious. 
You earn something. You get a job. I mean, there's nepotism and things like that. But for the most part, you're supposed to earn the jobs you get, right? You're supposed to earn the schools you go into. Everywhere we look in society, things are supposed to be earned. Righteousness is supposed to be earned. You have a performance validating record. You have to earn things. Bring it into the the, the spiritual realm, right? Christianity is the only religion in the history of the world. Paul is saying... This is the first time in the history of the world, and may I say the last time in the history of the world, where you will see a religion that's not based on your merit. It's not about your righteousness. Every other movement, spirituality, how you connect with God, it's can I do, am I doing enough good stuff? Am I a good moral person? Am I following the tenets of my faith? Do you get that? Does that make sense? That's what every other religion is all about. Christianity is diametrically opposed to that because it says you don't need to put your record in front of God because God says there is only one record that you need that I need to see. There's only one record that is in fact perfect and that record is one Jesus Christ. He had a perfect record. When God sees you, he sees the son's perfect record. He doesn't see your good deeds. He doesn't see what you've earned. He doesn't see you climbing like the stairs at the Scala Santa trying to get to the top. God, I can please you. I can get up to the top. I can do it. I can do it. I can justify myself. Oh no. We're in the deep water today. We're not in the shallow end. We're in the very deep water. Tread. Keep treading with me. Come on. Stay with me. (laughs) And what about that other word? Because it's in here. Justification. Can I just kind of stop? Let me just move away from the text a little bit. Let's just talk about this. That word justification. Some of you heard Tim Keller talk about it. And I, I, I mean, uh, John Piper talk about it. Justification is much more than just being pardoned. Like you, you hear, we hear, right? You're forgiven. We're Christians. Hey, I get it, man. I'm forgiven. How many times since I was young and I'd be somewhere. Where the heck was I? I was in, uh, down in Florida somewhere. God help us. I think I was in like Disney World somewhere. And somebody was like passing out tracks. And the guy was running around after people. And he's like, did you know that God, you know, he forgives you and his grace. And, and I was kind of like, hey, that's good, man. That's good. But most people don't really care. And m- maybe you want to get in a relationship with some of these people before you do this. And so many people were like really turned off. And, but everyone thinks that's the Christian message. And we're in here today and we go, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm forgiven. That means by his grace, by what he did on the cross, right? Christianity is so much richer and deeper than that. It's not just about being forgiven. Justification, being made right with God, is so different than that. And I love what Keller said. He had an illustration. He said, it's, it's, like, it's more like getting the Congressional Medal of Honor bestowed upon you. Like You get out of jail. You're, you're, you're out of jail. You can never be sent back to jail again, right? So you're out of jail. You can't be sent back. And it's like they're showering you with the Congressional Medal of Honor. Forgiveness. Yeah, that's good. We're talking justification. There's so much more here. And this is how he says it. Here's one quote from him. I'll give you it because it was so wonderful. The voice which spells forgiveness will say, you may go. You have been let off the penalty which your sin deserves. But the verdict which spells justification will say, you may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. Wow is right. If you didn't say wow, this is, pretty, this is pretty amazing. I'm going to take this and put this on the website. Ruminate on this, this quote. Study this. Are you kidding me? This means when you become a Christian, it's not about trying harder to get somewhere. And you say, I know I'm forgiven. No, no, no. 
we are trying, it's false righteousness, it's pseudo-Christianity that we keep trying to climb up the steps. Our righteousness. I can get up there and you say, no, 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 I understand. I understand what Christianity is about. I understand the gospel. And I would say, no, to a large extent we don't because we're looking to other things in the place of Jesus Christ. We're looking to other things to complete us. Jerry Maguire, remember, you complete me? He completes us, but we're still looking to all these other things, a false righteousness. That makes sense. I'm doing a little more teaching than I think you usually hear on a Sunday morning, but important. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. How many of you are familiar, to try to make this hit home a little bit, you're familiar with the name Fiorello LaGuardia? All right. Fiorello, you know, the diminutive... uh, charismatic mayor from New York during the Great Depression, right, for the bulk of the Great Depression. It's 1935. He's about a little over five feet tall. I would have loved to have been around watching this guy in action. And uh, he, it's a cold winter night. Sorry to bring that to you. Kind of like w- what we've had this winter season, a cold winter night. And there he is. He's walking the streets and he's heading to a night court in one of the poorest areas of New York. He goes inside and he relieves the judge from the bench. And he says, look, all right, I'm going to stay in here. And imagine like the mayor is here, like he's sitting on the bench. And he starts listening to all these cases. And case after case is being brought before him. There steps up in the middle of this an old woman, tattered, disheveled. I mean, she's an absolute mess. What are the charges against this woman? What's, what's being levied against her? Store owner says, she stole a loaf of bread from me. Is this true, ma'am? Yes, it is, Your Honor, and let me tell you why. My son-in-law deserted us, my wife is sick, and I have two grandkids at our home, and they're starving. They have nothing. They have no food. The store owner refuses to drop the charges. I'm not dropping the charges. The law is the law. We're in a bad area. And listen, if people think that you can get away with this stuff, I'm in big trouble, and then other people are going to try to steal. And with that, LaGuardia says, he's right. I'm sorry, ma'am, you're going to have to pay $10 or spend 10 days in jail. But with that, as he's saying that, he pulls out $10. He says, I'm going to remit the $10 fine. In his, and he takes it and he puts it in his famous sombrero. And he puts it in his sombrero and he tells the bailiff and he says, come here, I want you to take this. And furthermore, you are going to fine every single person in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where two grandkids are starving and some woman has to steal bread. The point is, if you didn't get it, the point is, yes, her, her, her fi- the fine and what she did, she broke the law. He said, I'm going to forgive you what you did, but they collected $47.50 for this woman. She was showered with blessing. Saints, this morning, I'm here to tell you, you have not just received remission of sin you have received you're a son and daughter of the living god everything that he has is yours it's yours why are we walking around like paupers we are justified in the eyes of god and we're we're last can i get to this last couple of points steve if you i'm gonna go for five more minutes but when you look around you know what i'm thinking about this and i'm saying you know what part of the problem is We have kids, right? They're in the church, right? Kids are in the church, and what happens many times? Kids are in the church, and then they cycle out, right? They're in the church. They're they're maybe, they're teenagers. Maybe they cycle out. They're young adults. They have some problems. They come back to the church. Who's with me right now, right? 
Then, as young adults, they stay around for a little while, and then they leave again. And now they're a little bit older. They come back to the church, they're raising kids, and they have other issues going on. So they say, you know what? I need to get right with God. And the problem is, as you move along the lines of time, look at the progression. It's, I have to try harder. And they come in and they recommit and recommit and recommit. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. God, forgive me for my sin. And listen, it's good that we realize we all have sin. But the problem is, and again, can I give you something from Keller? Tom and I always talk, I mean, we call it, you, you Kellerize things. And what Keller said, which blew me away, he said, we need to be a people that stop looking at our sins and look at our righteousness. What? We need to repent of our righteousness. What are you talking about, James? I'm saying to, don't, by the way, don't text me or email me later on. So it's a right that I sin? No, no, no. Get right with God, ask for forgiveness, but I'm saying to us today, the bigger problem we have, and I don't care if you've been a Christian for 45 years because you don't hear this. This is not something you heard from Pastor Linda. You don't hear it out there. You don't read many books. You don't hear many people on TV talk about this. That's why I love the guy. And Keller is saying, stop looking at your sins. If you want to be a Pharisee, you want to be moralistic, you want to be uh, hypocritical, self-justifying, legalistic, you can. But look at your righteousness. Look at what makes you a Christian. Stop repenting of your sins. It's not about attaining things. It's not about attainment. It's about atonement. Did you get that? It's not attainment. It's atonement. And we look to, and you know what a problem is all the time I always hear? God, just how could God forgive me? How could God forgive me for my sins, the things that I've done? I would say to you, if that's how you feel, and there are certain sins that you're like, man, there's no way he could forgive me. Look at myself. I would say you are looking at those things, again, to replace who God is in your life. That God is not on the throne in your life. You're looking to those things. I have to be complete by having something else. A girlfriend or a boyfriend breaks up with you, right? Oh my gosh, that was the love of my life. I can't forgive myself. You're saying, in essence, in order to be complete and happy, I had to have that thing. I'm here again to tell you, you don't have to have that thing. You need one thing, and it's him. It's Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. My job. Oh gosh, my, I, I need, if I don't get that job, oh, this is the job of my dreams. I would say to you, if you don't get that job and you say, God, where are you? I would say you didn't need that thing. And you're looking at that thing to be the one thing in your life. Repent. It's false righteousness. We all do it. I do. We all do it. How about his parents? Come on. Am I preaching yet? How about his parents? You think you really just have your kids' best interests at heart. I drive my kids everywhere. My kids go to this practice, and they go to that practice, and they get tutoring here, and they play the piano. Oh, yeah, and they sing, and they do this and that. I just do it purely for them, purely for them, because I want them to be good people. Yeah, to some extent you do, but it's selfish. I'm selfish, and you're selfish. You care more about, and when something happens, listen to me, when something happens to your kids, you'll realize what's really on the throne of your heart. Because you've idolatry, you know, it's idolatry. You've put your kids up here. We all fight this. I fight it. My kid's five years old. I care. What's his reading level? Where is he at? Oh, he's got to get better in math. Oh my gosh, he doesn't. The other day, case in point, here you go. Athletics my whole life. High school, college, football. This kid, the older guy, has no, he doesn't see, I mean, he may as he gets older. That's boring, daddy. Football's boring, honey. <laughs> really? 
Really? It's boring? Really? Okay, it's boring. I'd rather sit home and, and read or play games and everything. I'm like, who is this kid? <laughs> I became much more cerebral, I guess, as I got older. But listen, I, when I was young, it was, I played sports all the time. And part of me, though, had to, has to die to the fact that, hey, look, I have certain dreams and goals. I care how I look. It's about me. It's not as much about those kids. And I would say to you, you probably feel the same way. As a parent, you need to look in the mirror and say, why are you really putting your kids in a thousand different activities? Is it because you just want them to, I don't know, you know, I, I could say a lot of things. Stop, stop me. Please, somebody stop me. <laughs> oh, God, stop yourself. Let me just stop. I got to stop. Yeah, I got to stop. Okay. <laughs> no. Bottom line, though, we need, to, we need to realize that we have to turn away from the things that we really are trusting in this world. And you hear it all the time, but, it, but come on, it's really true. The thing that you felt that was really your savior, to, I, this was just a quote from him, the thing that you felt was really your savior is not forgiving you. Approval, power, accomplishments, athletics, your career. And we feel like, why, why can't I get over this? It's because that's the thing we're looking to. This is, in essence, what Galatians 3 is really about. Again, I didn't really do a normal teaching like I've done in the past on certain books in the Bible, but I'm trying to draw out, with the help of other people that have a lot more insight into the text than I do, the really important truths for us as, as a people. I'm here to tell you again a couple of points. Can we summarize? All right, in summarizing... Don't, don't stop just repenting of your sins. Repent of your righteousness, the ways that we're trying to climb and get to God. And you may say, what? The Protestant Reformation back then, why would people do that stuff? We're doing the same exact thing. You're doing it, I'm doing it. Pseudo-salvation. Pseudo-salvation. It looks like it's not the real thing. Can I give you one more example? How about this? One more. You with me? One more? I'm pushing. I'm stretching the limits a little bit. I just, I thought of it this morning and Megan, you remember that we went to the city, we went to Chinatown. Rob and Suzanne, Rob, you remember this? Stop playing the clans if you're playing. I'm teasing them, all right? If, uh, if they remember, we went to Chinatown, and uh, this is maybe a couple of years ago. You remember this, Rob? We went to Chinatown. Suzanne, you remember this? And we went to one of those places, and we went into one of these stores, and these guys, like, I don't know, these people that own the store, these, uh, I think they were Asian individuals, and they, they, they like, brought us to, like, this room, like, this door, and it looked like it was, and some of you know what I'm talking about, what? Yeah, yeah, so I'm saying, yeah, I'm getting to, they, they didn't let us in, they only let the girls in, which was real shady. All right, bye girls, go down the little tunnel, all right, have fun, I hope I see you again, hope you're alive in five minutes, all right, yeah, all right, I know you, I trust you, I trust you, guy, I trust you. So they go down there, right, and then they come back with these, like, Louis Vuitton bags and, like, whatever it was, I'm, I don't know what it was, I'm kidding. They were knockoffs, and you know, and it, it wasn't the real thing. A real Louis Vuitton bag would be a couple of thousand dollars probably, but it looked just like the real thing. Oh, my gosh. It looks just like a real Louis Vuitton bag. All right? Pastor Linda, don't yell at me that I picked up the frame. I can feel you, like, looking at me. Like, <laughs> I totally felt you. But I'm just thinking, it, was, it looked like the real thing, but it wasn't the real thing. Because as time went on, like one month later, the buckles fall off. And like, this isn't a good bag. This is garbage. They sold me a false bill of goods. You paid $30 for it, right? You didn't pay a couple of grand for it. It looked like the real thing, but it wasn't the real thing. And I'm sorry, much of what we see in Christianity that's propagated is not the real thing. And I'm not denigrating or disparaging other people. I just know from my upbringing, what I learned in my house, what we've been taught over the years, and I'm just drawing out some other people 
This is the gospel. This is the gospel. It's not about works righteousness. It's not about adding anything. We're trying. We're strivers. All of us. You're striving somehow. You're trying to find satisfaction and completion somehow outside of the only place you should be looking. The cross. Lord, Lord, I thank you for this word from the Apostle Paul. Lord, I thank you as we started out this sermon that we saw the power, Lord, of his words and how it transformed lives. Father, I ask that you would do that today. Yeah, that's bold. Father, but I know and believe as a student of history that you've done it countless times, that you poured out your spirit. Lord, I ask that you would pour out your spirit on all flesh in North America and South America and in Africa and Far East Asia, that nowhere is beyond your touch. Nowhere on this planet is beyond your reach. And I thank you and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that one day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that you indeed are Lord. Father, reveal yourself to people. Lord, I ask you that the eyes of hearts would be open, not minds, but hearts, that hearts would be open to the truth that you would give them, all of us, a spirit of revelation as to who you really are. You would give us a real picture of the gospel. We would stop trying and trying and trying and trying and realize that it is all done already. We're continually being conformed into your image. Yes, Lord, I know we are. Father, continue to do that, but may we stop striving and looking for other things to fully complete us, whether it's our vocation, whether it's our academic record, whether it's a a, a girl or a guy, a spouse, whatever it may be, Lord, may you reveal that as people come up to the table today, as they reflect on your word. May it be, I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit that these things can happen. I believe that you have not lost any of your power. No way. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.